Jody Vance with you. Uh, definitely a day that many people lucky enough to own property in uh, the city of Vancouver uh, dread. <laughs> property tax deadline day is today. This is it. The last day to pay your 2022 uh, main tax claim, your homeowner grant, complete your deferment application or renewal to avoid that 5% penalty on your unpaid balance. Boy, anyone who's been just a couple hours late on paying their property tax learns that lesson real quick. I'm putting my hand up on that one. A mistake I will not make again. I made it a couple of years ago. As I said, many lucky enough to have put everything into their primary residence. Uh, quite concerned about the idea that maybe that last bastion safe haven for uh, savings, your home equity on that primary residence might be next uh, for taxation. We want to talk through all of this and the affordability crunch that is living in British Columbia, never mind Metro Vancouver, never, never mind the city of Vancouver. Paul Sullivan is with us on the line, a property tax expert and uh, Ryan ULC principal. Paul, thanks for doing this. Good morning, Jody. Good to have you here. And boy, when I got your release uh, this week and and just started unpacking it, I thought this needs to be a segment on the radio. So I'm glad to have you here. Let's talk about the city of Vancouver in particular. It isn't just my imagination that it feels like my hometown has been uh, diving headlong into my wallet these past four years under Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the problem. What we've got is, you know, increases in taxation significantly above uh any other measure of increases going on other than currently inflation. But if you look at five years, it's over 25%. And four years since Mayor Stewart, it's 20%. And 20% increase in property taxes, you know, just, just unsupportable. Um, we, the problem we're having is we have strayed so far from the core services. And the core services that municipalities provide are what property taxes was designed to fund. And now we're funding everything from all the levels of government that, that have you know, retracted from, from funding to, to municipalities. And then we have political agendas of councillors that are adding costs and burdens to the property owners, and the property owners can't fund all the social agendas. So it's not sustainable, and it looks like just more and more taxes on the horizon. And when you're talking, Paul, about percentages, in a, a, an inflated market the way it is here in the city of Vancouver, I mean, I feel... Some of us are, you know, bringing it together, treading water, finding a way to pay our taxes and do our thing. But I think about those who purchased their homes decades ago, aging in place and needing to come up with an incredibly large sum of money based on the inflated market. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then we have this council and our mayor supporting the additional school tax, which effectively doubles the property tax bill for, for West Side Properties. And, uh, you know, people just don't have the money to pay these bills. So, you know, we've had a doubling of the deferral, property tax deferral program, which to me is a clear indicator that people can't afford to pay. Um, and, and, and people have spent a lifetime investing in their properties. Uh, and, and we're in a situation where they're going to be, you know, having very little money to pass on to future generations to continue living in Vancouver. So what are we doing? We're, we're changing the face of our city. And I don't think Vancouverites want that. No, certainly. We, I mean, born and raised Vancouverite, we're, uh, some of us are a rare group that have watched this city grow, which is a good thing. Uh, more people identifying that our neck of the world is a beautiful place to call home. And yet, 
being incapable of keeping up with that growth, seeing the number of people uh, crunched by the uh, affordability and the lack of affordable housing, seeing the hollowing out of our downtown, and and now the the sort of prevalent. I don't know, graffiti, the smashed window issues, the, the, the meadowing of urban lands. I mean, driving by high schools and elementary schools just this week, everywhere you look, we're, we're overgrown and graffitied and smashed and bordered up in a way that I don't know, in my 54 years in this city, I have never seen before. And, and not to mention the fact that the garbage isn't being picked up. I mean, the overflowing garbage can, these are basics in the These city are how core, the, yeah the core services these are the things the municipalities you know fire safety engineering cleanup garbage these are the things that people expect these are these are what we we're meant to pay our property tax towards and and it's just not happening and uh it's a complete melee in downtown vancouver it's it's not an attractive place to visit and it's getting less safe by the day and i fear we're going the way of seattle and portland and all other u.s cities which is a very dangerous place to go. And so we need our, 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 our councils to get more focused on core services. We, didn't, we don't need to be increasing property taxes 25% over five years. We need to be deploying our, our resources into the services that make a city attractive and a nice place to live for renters and for owners. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we do that when we're watching council? And there are great people who work at City Hall. This isn't a slag on city staff and every councillor and what have you. But the number of pet projects that have been put on the table with the lack of attention to those core needs for this city to run in a way that that supports its citizens who ultimately pay all of the people involved. I mean, short of standing... Uh, you know, on on our soapboxes or talking about it on the radio, what can be done? Is this does it all come down to October fifteenth, twenty twenty two, and how do we find the candidates for council for mayor who might get back to those basics? Because as you mentioned, our jumping off point here, you know, a twenty point five five increase in property taxes over the last four years is untenable for so many. Yeah, that's right. And um, so a couple things need to happen here. If you're coming forward with a, a unique proposal that may have a lot of social merit, figure out how to fund it. Don't just come to the taxpayer and ask them to fund it. We need to move back to core services. So, you know, they keep launching all these new taxes on homeowners and they, they disguise it under this guise of affordable housing. And, you know, the record is clear. Taxing homeowners is not creating affordable housing. So whether it's affordable housing you're trying to achieve or, or, or civil, you know, normal uh, standards for a city, um, you need to finance them through potentially through growth, through incentive programs, through speeding up approval times, through selling density. The city's got so many tools to create wealth and, and, and funds to fund programs, but but they don't seem to have the capacity to do it rapidly enough or creatively enough to, to actually make a difference. We're with Paul Sullivan, property tax expert and Ryan ULC principal. And Paul, when you say that the statement you just made, is it is it that this is an ongoing wedge issue? Is it are we in a perpetual situation? I mean, you're a tax property tax expert, but also understand the politics behind this. Are we in a perpetual state of of campaigning you know the second somebody is 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 brought into power they're just immediately campaigning to be reelected. 
it, it does seem to be a wedge issue. And, and the wedge, unfortunately, is a very divisive one, pitting renters against homeowners and taxation to pay. And, and it's really unfortunate because over half of our residents are renters and, and we're creating this very divisive political structure and, and saying that taxation is the solution to everybody's you know, needs and it's just not. So, you know, I've listened to the ABC platform. They've got some very creative ways of creating revenue and, and housing solutions. And, you know, I think uh, what I've seen in the past four years is, is nothing but taxation. And it's proven to be unhealthy socially and, and ineffective in terms of delivering housing. And they're straying further from core services. And the socialist programs that are going on are not going to be sustainable because homeowners cannot continue to pay. Let's talk about some solutions here from your learned perspective. What can be done here to level the playing field? Is it, is it even possible to do that in the short term? Well, I think what everybody wants is, is for, you know, uh, safe streets, clean environments, parks, pools. I mean, that's what, you know, renters, homeowners, everybody's looking for. So let's get back to those core services and then let's get to the housing problem because that's, you know, that's going to be a wedge issue at the election, too. I've seen no success out of our past four years. Um, let's let I mean, the obvious solutions are let's get rid of red tape and, and, and regulation and get certain housing types approved rapidly. And I mean, weeks, not months, not five to seven years. It currently right. takes. Uh, yeah. So mandate approval time, set targets. I want targets for density. I mean, we've got some efforts on the table, but I think the Broadway plan got so watered down with, you know, in special interest groups that, you know, it's just not going to happen. If things are not profitable, if they don't make economic sense, they won't get built. And so the more you, 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 you creep social agendas into housing, the more you have to incentivize it. So we keep adding things, but not creating the, 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 the inducements to make it happen. So we can fund a lot through development, through yeah. selling density. But if we can't get it approved quickly, it's all for naught. Right, because it doesn't make sense for the the small developer or somebody who owns a piece of land, a piece of property in Vancouver where you maybe have a single family home and think I could put six really livable family units on this piece of property. And yet the idea will take maybe a decade to get approval. It's that and, and, and it's too risky because now you're you're talking about building into a market that you don't know what it looks like in five years and it presents too much risk. My firm yeah. is one of the largest appraisal companies in Canada. We are we are the front end of every development because we provide the, the valuation for construction financing. And I have never seen so many projects cancelled uh, due to housing costs, due to risk. You know, people think that a lot of housing is on the way. It's not. And rental is not going to work out because it's taking too long to approve and construction costs are too high. And so I fear the Broadway plan is going to be a flop. All right. Welcome back. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And boy, yesterday, the 4th of July is one that will forever change how that U.S. holiday Independence Day is celebrated in the United States after not one but two Shootings. One mass shooting very deadly at Highland Park, Illinois, at a 4th of July parade, and another in Philadelphia with two police officers injured when gunfire rang out during the fireworks gathering for the 4th of July. 4th of July chaos, in fact, 
in the United States, so many of us here in Canada with friends and family, loved ones in the U.S. worried for the gun culture and how it is almost hourly that we are tabulating the terror within the United States. It is really jarring, isn't it? Here's a just a tidbit of sound from Good Morning America. This is a witness of the Highland, Illinois, Highland Park, Illinois shooting. Have a listen. I was holding my one-year-old and behind us, I thought there was a sound of fireworks and um, seconds later, I realized that that's not what it was. So I, I believe I hit the ground with my daughter and I remember looking around trying to figure out where the sound was coming from and I, in fact, looked up um, at the neighboring business across the street and saw the shooter on the roof. Um, and I just, I screamed that it was a shooter and I got my daughter and we ran into my husband's store and I yelled for my son and my mother and father-in-law and we all were able to get in safely as my husband helped a whole bunch of other patrons get away from the danger. Now, just before we take you uh, live to Washington, D.C. and our global uh, national Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini, I want to play just this audio. Listen closely here. It's only 12 seconds long. But this is audio of the alleged shooter at Highland Park. This is his arrest. Listen to this. Okay, so I watched it was a much longer uh, video, obviously, with just just a big, big number of law enforcement around this alleged shooter's vehicle. And, and he, with his hands up, having just killed and injured people uh, in, in a sniper's position, allegedly, I got to put allegedly in there because nothing's done until he's proven to be guilty in a court of law. But I'm not sure if you heard that. The officer saying, do me a favor. And lie flat on your stomach. We're going to talk about that as well here. But let's bring in Reggie Cicchini. And and Reggie, as always, I appreciate you taking some time. It seems all too often that we are connecting to discuss gun violence in the United States. Can you take us through what happened on the 4th of July uh, from your perspective? Welcome. Uh, hi. So this, yeah, this this was a, a situation um, that has become commonplace uh, across this country, where somebody um, is in uh, possession of an assault rifle, uh, and then allegedly uses that rifle to carry out, um, you know, a mass shooting event. We've seen this time and time again. I saw this, uh, you know, take place firsthand when I was in Uvalde, Texas, uh, and and here we are now uh, in in Illinois, watching a similar situation carry out, where police are just providing uh, an update right now, and they say that the suspect at twenty one year old correcting the age on that uh to 21 um dressed up in women's clothing before this um event took place before this parade took place went to the top of a building with his gun that police say was purchased legally um and opened fire killing six people injuring um 31 uh and and jody i think what's what's kind of more remarkable to think about as 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 horrific as a as as this attack was this was one of 13 mass shootings that took place across the united states uh between Je- uh, july 1st and uh last night 13 of them there have been more than 300 in this country since january 1st wow reggie it's just it gives a visceral physical reaction to hear this and yet what is being done? What can be done? Is there a feeling of insecurity in public places and spaces in the United States today? 
There's fear uh, amongst the general public, uh, and we heard from witnesses that were at this uh, event in Highland Park say that, you know, they're fearful of sending their kids to school now. They're fearful of ever attending another mass public event like this where there's a lot of people in one contained area because um, it is now a reality that this can hit anywhere and everywhere across this country. This is a uniquely American problem, uh, and the crisis is, um, you know, it impacts um, people from, from coast to coast. Uh, and when you're hearing from someone like the governor of Illinois saying this needs to change, but at the same time, you know, admits that it's likely not going to change, even with new legislation that was just signed into law last month by President Biden, uh, th- there is um, there is a general amount of fear, worry and concern for what happens next, because we now see Highland Park etched into uh, an ever growing list of cities and towns across the United States that have been torn apart by gun violence. And it is just a, a common fact now that that. That will not be the last and there will be another city that finds itself in a similar position. Okay, you just mentioned the Illinois Illinois governor uh, speaking to the gun violence. He, he did not mince words and I do have audio from that press briefing. Let's have a listen. This is the governor of Illinois speaking about what happened at Highland Park on the 4th of July. I'm furious that this is happening in communities all across Illinois and America. I'm furious because it does not have to be this way. And yet we as a nation, well, we continue to allow this to happen. While we celebrate the 4th of July just once a year, mass shootings have become our weekly, yes, weekly American tradition. So hearing him speak in, the, in, in being furious and wanting to make change, but also speaking to the fact that all the way up the political food chain, if you will, there, is so, there are so many roadblocks in place protecting the right to bear arms. Where is the political will to remove the, the rapid fire, the assault weapon, like we heard the gunfire in the, in the back audio of that uh, witness at Highland Park's uh, recount of what was happening, the, the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, like that, the debate over AR-15s, the debate over uh, weapons of war in the United States being sold to 21-year-olds legally, uh, that, that dialogue, is it just so cyclical? Here we are again. Yeah. And I mean, look, the mayor of, of Highland Park, um, she, she spoke out this morning saying that all of the weapons that are used in these mass shootings, a lot of them are obtained legally. Uh, and that, you know, speaks to uh, a country where the laws simply don't make any sense and that the laws simply aren't working. And that is because these assault rifles are allowed to be purchased legally by people who are as young as 18 years old. And there are oftentimes no caps or, or limits uh, on the amount of ammunition that can also be purchased at the same time, which really does kind of create, um, you know, the 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 perfect situation for this kind of scenario to unfold. Uh, and with that legislation that was signed by the president last month, this bipartisan legislation that was worked on, uh, you know, for weeks and weeks after the Uvalde, Texas shooting, uh, what was involved in it? Things to do with the root cause, the root cause in the eyes of Republicans being mental health uh, and crisis counseling. Despite the fact that, you know, mental health exists around the world, yet this is a uniquely American problem. So the root cause in the eyes of critics and many Democrats is the gun itself. 
Was there a ban on assault, assault rifles in the legislation that passed last month? There was not, because there is no political appetite for that amongst Republicans, despite, Jody, the fact that there are a growing number of people around the United States from both sides of the political aisle saying that these are weapons of war and that they do not need to be in the hands of the average um, American. We hear this from, you know, not only lawmakers, but lawmakers who also fought uh, overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, who say that that is where these weapons are useful, not on public city streets. The problem is people can access them, and the Supreme Court has now upheld that. So the multi-million or even billion-dollar question is, the will isn't there for on the Republican side. Is it because of money? Uh, from the NRA? Is it the power of the gun lobby? Why is there no appetite to at least take the weapons of war off the streets of the United States? It's a, it's a variety of different reasons. The National Rifle Association, as dwindling as it may be in its power and in its kind of financial clout, does still have an incredible um, amount of influence on the Republican Party, and it can, it can still connect members of the Republican Party to um, a portion of the Republican base. And the, the NRA is going to stand up for what it believes is an infringement of Second Amendment rights if the weapon itself is put under a spotlight and if the weapon itself uh, is no longer allowed to be accessed by the average American. that The NRA does play a significant role here, but also, too, is the fact that this is a Republican Party that is divided uh, amongst itself. You saw Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, uh, assist with pushing this bipartisan legislation through, even though within his own party, there were people that were pushing back on that because they do not want to see any kind of uh, rights infringed upon or any kind of gun legislation because, again, they see this as an issue of mental health. So even within the Republican Party, there are, there are members trying to go along with what the broad majority of Americans say. But as we've seen play out in this country, it can often be a minority of people with the loudest voice that ultimately uh, prevent things from being able to move forward. That is audio of the arrest of the alleged Harlan Highland, excuse me, park shooter. Uh, many police officers, weapons drawn, and you hear over the loudspeaker, do me a favor, get on your knees, get on your knees, lie flat on your stomach. Very different is that arrest, many will point out, than the uh, attempted uh, I don't even know if we can call it an arrest when you see the body cam footage of Jalen Walker, a man shot 60 times, unarmed, a weapon found in his vehicle, but he was running from his vehicle when 90 rounds, upwards of 90 rounds were shot at Jalen Walker, 60 landed. Reggie Cicchini is with us, our global national Washington, D.C. correspondent. Certainly, Reggie, this has to be a topic of conversation in the United States today. And you were listening to the the police briefing, the update, uh, just before coming on with us today. Uh, What can you tell us about uh, the arrest uh, the suspect in the Highland Park shooter or any any news about Philadelphia as well? Well, I mean, look, the, the arrest, um, you know, everybody saw that play out. Um, and, and you're right that it does pale in comparison to what we saw take place uh, following um, the events in, in Akron, Ohio, after that police body cam footage uh, was released. And it has really sparked that conversation over police training and over um, the, the treatment of uh, suspects when they are white versus the treatment of suspects who are black. And you said it right there, that do me a favor that is now kind of echoing and reverberating around this country. Do me a favor was never asked 
lost in that body camera footage uh, from Akron, Ohio. Uh, and there were more rounds fired at that individual in Akron from police than there were fired into the crowd uh, by uh, by the suspect in Highland Park, with police saying in Highland Park, 70 uh, rounds of fire uh, were, were um, administered from uh, that firearm that he was holding. Uh, and, and this really, again, does speak to a national problem uh, throughout this country. Uh, and yeah, in Philadelphia as well, there was a suspect that opened fire uh, on two police officers. Those officers uh, expected to recover, but it, it all it, it kind of falls into that growing uh, gun crisis that has been, you know, continuing to grow year after year after year in this country, which is why, you know, you tell the average American, hey, guess what? There were 12 or 13 mass shootings over the last four days uh, and people no longer bat an eye because it is simply just expected to hear something like that is going to happen. It's just unbelievable. The number of mass shootings that are now taking place in the United States, the escalation in the gun violence. Is there a conversation that's being had about what's sparking this? Is it, uh, is it, I don't know. What, what is the conversation? What's at the root of this when it's broken down by the experts? Because we hear the stat all the time that somebody suffering from a mental health break is, is eight times more likely to be the victim of gun violence than a perpetrator here. So, to, you know, to just throw it all at mental illness is, is a difficult one. It is a difficult one, uh, you know, and that does play into it. You know, I've got some colleagues uh, who work on the, the quote unquote dystopia beat down here, um, and, and they follow, uh, the information and they follow the dark parts of the internet and how, uh, you know, how the internet really can radicalize somebody. Uh, and if somebody is in, um, you know, not the right kind of headspace, uh, it's easy to be drawn somewhere that can, can ultimately change the way that you view things. Uh, and there are concerns that this is what we're seeing. And look, it goes far beyond the issue with just mass shooting. You know, you take a look at some of these far right parts of the Internet uh, with, with a lot of these Q conspiracies that can draw people in who ultimately then go out and carry out uh, attacks on, you know, the LGBTQ community. It, this, there can be blame that's placed, um, you know, on parts of the Internet. But but ultimately, you're going to hear critics to the legislation that was signed by the president who say, look, at the end of the day, the problem here is the gun. Um, and, you know, it, it, it kind of melts away in that argument back and forth of, well, guns don't kill people, ki- people kill people. But, um, you know, when you're looking at city after city in this country and dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of families who have lost somebody or have become uh, victimized themselves by gun violence, they will say that the gun uh, is the issue and we can no longer use this, uh, you know, good guys with a gun, kill bad guys with a gun scenario because we obviously didn't see that take place in a place like Uvalde, Texas. So what is the crisis here? Depends on who you're talking to, but you're going to find a never ending argument, which is why things don't get accomplished in the U.S., is that some people will say the gun is the problem. Some people will say that the person holding the gun is the problem. And without an ability to come together on that, um, you really run into this ongoing problem in the United States that gun violence simply can't be tackled. This is something that I fear we will be discussing more in the days and weeks to come. Reggie, as always, I appreciate you bringing the perspective from Washington, D.C. in such a learned way. Thank you for your time today, as always. You bet. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, uh, continuing our conversation here about returning to work. Now, as the pandemic restrictions have loosened around the country, many companies have started to pull employees back into the office, back to some semblance of normalcy, even as we still struggle through COVID-19, certainly not over this pandemic and not over, however, uh, managing in new ways, apparently able to perhaps 
handle or manage the impacts of COVID-19 in the work environment where we were dealing with a situation of having no idea really what we were dealing with uh, back in March of 2020 when we were all told to go home and stay home and work from home. So what is it like to return to work? How many Canadians have decided that they are returning to the office. And what is that like in terms of the happiness quotient? We connect now with Daryl Bricker, who's the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, because there is an Ipsos poll on Canadians heading back to the office. Daryl, good to have you. Great to be on, Jody. Thanks for having me on. Let's pack uh, or unpack, I guess we should say, uh, what Canadians are doing, what they're thinking, how we're feeling as a society with regard to return to work. What First, tell us about the, po- the polling criteria that, that you laid out here. Uh, who were you? How many uh, people did you, did you reach, out, reach out to and in what window? Oh, so about a thousand people a couple of weeks ago. And, and what we found was that and these are people who are working. So, you know, obviously we're not talking to students and retirees and people like that. So these are people who are actually working. So three-quarters of the people that we interviewed, so 74%, said that they have gone back to what they were doing pre-pandemic. Now, that doesn't mean that they've all gone back to the office. In fact, uh, uh, we found that uh, I think uh, the, the actual number was about 14%, actually 18%, who act before the pandemic were either working full-time from home or they were in some sort of a, a hybrid type of a working environment. So mm. they're always slightly moving to that type of a situation prior to that. But the actual number who have gone back to exactly what they were doing working outside of the home is about 57%. That strikes me as lower than I would have imagined. Yeah, well, you've got two groups that are in the other, uh, that make up the rest of the 57, so the 43. One of them w- was a group of people who uh, weren't, working out of, uh, weren't working in an office or working on a work site. Um, uh, to begin with. So they were um, either working full-time from home or they were in some sort of a hybrid relationship. But then there's this other group, which is about 20% of the population who've moved to a new situation in which they're not back to their pre-pandemic work style. Um, mm. And they're either not going back to the op, well, they're not working outside of the home the way that they used to. So it's about one in five. So one in five. Okay. Now, what are the reasons uh, for those who have elected to work from home or in a hybrid model rather than returning to the workplace? Well, for those who are working um, at, at home or in some sort of a hybrid model, uh, one answer I found was really interesting was there's no workplace for them to return to. So their mm. office has closed down or their work site has closed down and they, their employer has decided to have everybody work from home. So there's a, there's a group of people who uh, fit into that category. But then there's really uh, the biggest group of people who, who really relate to um, uh, this idea of having a lifestyle that's more conducive to having um, a, a situation in which you're spending more time at home for your work. So whether it's because, you know, you're saving the money uh, due to, the, uh, due to uh, commuting, you're saving the time due to commuting, uh, you, maybe uh, it's easier for you to ha- take care of children or or and some, actually we had some people say they're pets, uh, but the, the lifestyle of being able to work at home, the situation, the work-life balance for them at home works uh, in the, uh, the, the style that they were working during the pandemic. It's different from them now, for them now, and they would like to, they would like to hold on to that. 
It's interesting uh, for for many of us who have been work from home. I I miss the camaraderie of of working at the radio station and being around my peers. And yet at the same time, I have been able to deliver. I have done every radio show since March 17th of 2020 from a little sort of corner of my home. For a while there, it was my son's closet because it was it had the best acoustics. But I've found all of those things that you named off, ch- caring for my family, as well as the money saving piece on the commute, uh, parking, and just, you know, not needing necessarily to be there. But there are those who must return to the workplace in order to do their job, but some never left their jobs for that reason. Uh, for those who have returned to the workplace, place, the most common reason for doing so is either that, I'm assuming, that, that it cannot be done remotely uh, to the degree right. that many of us enjoy, right? Yeah, and in, in fact, 58% of the 57 <laughs> said that, right. uh, so half of the, so a quarter, more than a quarter, uh, basically said, look, there's no way for me to do my job uh, from uh, from uh, from home. But, you know, there were also significant numbers that said they weren't given the option. Mm. So even if they could work at home, uh, about a quarter of the people who are uh, now gone back to the to their work situation said, "Well, my my employer never offered this as an option." So there's some people who simply can't, and and there's some employers who simply won't. So there's Darryl- those two reasons. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. We're talking about the Ipsos uh, poll on Canadians heading back to the office. And I do want to open up phones on this to find out if you're headed back to the office, if you've gone back to the office, why you chose to do so, or if you decided to make a change. So we will be opening up the phone lines on this. But before we do, Daryl, I want to just dig a little deeper into this because you you talk about those who... uh, have returned and and their most common reason being they can't do it remotely but there are other reasons why people are saying you know what i need to get back to work what were some of those other reasons well the the things that you were saying before jody which were you know i miss my co- my colleagues i miss the work environment and and a significant number of people who've gone back say look i like the separation between my work life and my home life and this yeah. gives me an opportunity to do them in se- separate places so there, there's there's a whole series of motivations, uh, but um, it, that that group of the population who say, you know, I can't wait to get back to the office. I'm missing the people that I work with. It's actually a fairly small segment of the population. Ipsos.com is a place you can go to uh, look at this uh, poll in its entirety. I did have a little bit of a chuckle when one of the reasons, 4% of of the people who have returned to the workplace uh, said that their reason for doing so was wanting to get away from their family. Um, I I can kind of see that because I mean, mean, it's in in the sense that sometimes doing the job in the home environment can be very stressful on the family dynamic for sure. And many of not able to sort of separate the two and lots of people don't have the space to do that. And it has been a challenge for many uh, to have everybody working from home. Uh, It's very interesting, the dynamics that were laid out and and the demographics that play a part in here. Was there one demographic that was really uh, leaning harder into hybrid over a return from work or even the complete work from home over another? That's one of the astounding things that we saw in the survey. Not, not really. So it, it, it seems like the, the work situation uh, is something that's more randomly distributed in the population. And so, you know, one of the assumptions that gets made is, you know, it's the young people that all want to go back to the office. Well, not really, not significantly more. Uh, yeah. or, that it's, uh, or that it's women that are more likely to want to stay at home. No, there's not really that significant a difference between how men and women feel about this. But it also shows that, you know, when we, we kind of pump up 
uh, examples, like for the ones that you, you mentioned before about, you know, I can't work at home because my kids run in on my Zoom calls. Well, that's like 4% of the population, but we make that like it's a big thing. Well, it's only 4%. Right. Um, so, it, you know, when we look at the general uh, aspects of this, um, and when we look at the, the more common sort of situation, most of it is because people just don't have the choice. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Phone lines are open for you. We're talking about uh, how as pandemic restrictions have loosened around the country, companies have started to rein their employees in, get things back to some semblance of normalcy. So what does that look like after two years of work from home or hybrid? Uh, What are you doing? 74% of Canadians have returned to their pre-pandemic working conditions. And for over half of them, 57% means back to the office. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. I want to know what your situation is. Uh, Some say they're uh, back at work, but they would rather be staying at home. Others are absolutely staying at home or have a hybrid model because they're saving on commuting costs or time or like the work-life balance. It's less stressful, environmentally speaking, when you're working at home or just happier at home. 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. What's your situation and how you feeling about it? John in Vancouver, welcome. Hi, uh, I just want to let people know that it's not just the uh, businesses that are reeling people in, it's the government. So uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but governments are trying to rake in as much money now after COVID since all, they've paid out all this money. But the latest thing they're doing is people that are working from home are technically a home office and they're charging you or making you pay a business tax on your home office. So real estate agents that aren't going in anymore that are doing their work from home or people that are running their business from home because of COVID, you have to pay a business tax. If you don't, they can find you and take it out on your property tax. How much is the business tax? Because I work from home. (laughs) Well, they nailed us for a hundred and... 70 bucks a year and it has a lot of restrictions depending on what you sign up for so if you say that there's two people my wife and i working at home you can't have more than two people if you do you have to pay a higher fee hmm interesting yeah Yeah, it's it's still a tax tax. right yeah it is and i mean there's only two certainties in life right john death and taxes and certainly uh we're going to continue to have to pay because there's only one taxpayer and that's you and me jerry and kamloops welcome to the show jerry are you working from home or are you working remote i'm working remote but uh my my uh thought on this is the look at the people you're keeping off the roads i mean this climate change carbon tax you know if the government and and different people were more concerned about that kind of thing, you think they'd be pushing for working from home as much as possible. You know, I think of the people that are all staying at home, staying off the roads, you know. You bring a good uh, point to the table. There should be a tax break for people who are working from home, right? Because we're, we're easing up on, on the pressure on the infrastructure. Is that what you're saying? When it comes to the carbon cool. tax and the climate issues. Exactly. Like the last caller there, like the taxes, all, you know, all part and parcel of it. It's, it's a win-win when people can work from home, uh, you know. So I think it, there's a lot more to it than just, uh, you know, um, going back to the office or just, you know. I don't know. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. But that was no, I like it. I like where I like where you're coming from, Jerry. But I want to ask you this: If you were in a situation where you had to go back to the office, would you change what you do? No. 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 So you're fine either way, really. 
if it was a demand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I mean, it's easier said than done, right? You don't put a lot yep. of years into a business just to just to show it away, right? Just to pivot. Thank you for your time, Jerry. Appreciate it. Say hi to everybody up in Kamloops. Actually, I'm going to say hi to our next caller, also from Kamloops. Dale is on the line. Welcome to the show, Dale. Hi. Um, I was a, a clinical social worker uh, with mental health for 27 and some years. I was going to I turned 65 in June. I was planning on working till 70. Um, we went on to COVID, got to work from home. I didn't like it initially, but adjusted to it, found I was much more productive. Then I got the memo last summer. We were going to step three that, okay, expectation was to come into the office at least 50% of the time. And that's when it hit me. Like I thought, oh, I got to go back into a concrete building, pay for parking, um, take up space. Um, I'm much more efficient working from home. Uh, It was was kind of one of the major factors. I'd be saying, you know what? I think it's time to, uh, time to retire. So, um, a few other factors too, but, um, working from when I knew I had to go back to the office, uh, I, it was sort of, I got, I, I'm out of here. I get to I have the ability to retire. So I was going to do it. Um, right. the only thing I like about working from the office was the mentorship. That part I think was important. So it was my, it was my business. I would have had staff that could work from office, but maybe come in maybe a, a few hours, maybe once a week or, Maybe maybe uh, come in a bit of time for meetings to connect with people because I think that part is very important. Being able to right. uh, connect with Gather. people face to face, right? Brainstorm, be be working together as a unified group. It's not easy to do that on a Zoom call. Everybody is looking at themselves in the on the camera when you're sitting around a table and and having a cup of coffee and and having a good talk about where you know your business might be headed uh, is invaluable. Thank you for the call, Dale. I want to squeeze in Bob from White Rock here. Bob, welcome. Um, I was always classified as a remote worker, but I flew 200,000 miles a year. I worked for a large tech firm going to our customers. And, you know, we were helping them with our technology, delivering information. And with COVID, that just didn't happen. So it went 100% to remote deliveries. And what we found is raw delivery of information worked pretty well. Like for eight hours a day, I could tell them how to do something. But there is the art sometimes of what it is that you're doing, whether it be architecture or design work, like it, it really is best collaboratively. And I think that that's the thing we're struggling with right now is, you know, it was costing like $3,000 a week to send me to the places. They're saving so much money making that distinction of what can we deliver effectively remotely and when do we need to be on site? Right. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for the call, Bob. You make a really, really important point there when it comes to that that face-to-face versus the cost-saving piece to the bottom line, and businesses do struggle with that uh, margin of profit. Ted says, hi there, Jody. As we speak, I'm working from home. In my case, I did miss the camaraderie in the office, so I prefer being able to go in. However, having the option to work from home has been great. I found the only thing I really missed was that camaraderie, but working from home has literally given me about an hour a day of extra time, either in avoiding the commute. Admittedly, mine isn't long, only 15 to 20 minutes, uh, but missing out on office distress of, hey, you got a minute, interruptions. I, I appreciate you uh, uh, leaning in, Ted and Victoria.